Modern psychology and Buddhist psychology. It's one of the great areas of confusion in the world as practitioners in the modern West take up the practice of Buddhism. Now, Buddhism is really the oldest psychology. The reason why is because it is not a theistic-centered spiritual structure. So it's the most spiritual of all psychologies, and it's the most psychological of all spiritualities. The When the West began to discover Buddhism, and this would be the intellectuals, the scholars, the philosophers, sometimes artists, they were quite astonished as they got into it how much elaborate information on the incredible detail that Buddhism had regarding the workings of the mind. It is not like any other um, religious teaching. All the other religions do have some understanding of human nature. They understand uh, corruption in human nature. They understand nature of greed and hostility and confusion. But these are all very much in the normal area and they tend to be around the dysfunctional area as well. And uh, they hope that one you know, rises to some degree above this, but usually it's with the help of an exterior agency. Um, in Christianity, it's you really can't solve these problems by yourself or you wouldn't need Jesus. Uh, and the other ones are, what's the role of God or theism if you don't need them? So Buddhism is very unique and far ahead in insisting that no external agency will do the work for you. And so they've had to turn inwards. So the beginning, the very beginnings of Buddhism is the search. The Buddha is searching. And he is inclining in his search towards teachers that have cultivated the higher aspects of the mind. Most of what he discovers is different than also Greek type of thinkers. The Greeks are also, some of the Greek philosophers are also somewhat independent of the idea of a salvation through external agencies. And they develop some basic insights into psychology, but nothing as advanced as Buddhism. Modern psychology is an, an enormous industry. It's fairly recent. It takes over. We have to understand where does this modern psychology come from? And even the word psychology, we, we see that they had to develop this word. What was prime, used to be the job of philosophers? And in the United States, the first department of psychology was established at Harvard. Uh, probably in the 1880s or just a little bit before. And, and in Europe, not too long before that, they had people who were studying the psyche, 
the mind. Ed Bohr from the Greek, the psyche. And they're trying to do this in a somewhat respectably scientific way. And they're studying it independently of religion. And they're studying it as not just philosophically, uh, but more an attempt to make it more respectably a science. Now, in uh, the U.S., they had to borrow the professor of philosophy from the philosophy department to start the psychology department. So how do you start a psychology department if there are no psychologists? So they borrowed the one of the great thinkers of modern U.S. philosophy, William James. And he's, he's famous as a, a, a philosopher, um, but he also is even more famous, perhaps, as a psychologist. He's the founder of the Harvard Psychology Department. And in, he produces some of the, the great texts, which are really very interesting to even read now. There's a two-volume set that he produced for Harvard and his class is called The Principles of Psychology. And he has to wrestle with a lot of very interesting questions. And when I read this, now, you know, I spent a lot of time before I was exposed to Buddhism, I was exposed to Western philosophy and Western psychology, history, all of these things, ideas, culture, psychology in the university, the academic structures. And I, I was interested in this stuff. I was hoping to find solutions to my own issues. When I Then I left that to pursue Buddhist studies for a long time, for quite a few number of years. And then I came back and started to reread the history of philosophy and psychology science, all of these things from the West. And I was very startled, actually, as I came across in the earliest schools of psychology, such as William James and the Principles of Psychology, I found that he had to wrestle with certain issues, including the nature of the self. Now, the self in Buddhism is the central issue. It's the central a resolving and dissolving issue. Almost all of the cultures and religions of the world and philosophies assume a an immortal self, and they they assume it to be a very stable entity, perhaps immortal and unchangeable, and that's why it persists beyond death. And in our simple, in a simple way without great analysis. This, um, this idea is a folk idea that something that persists through death as the body collapses has got to be solid and uh, uh, indestructible. But Buddhism denies this. Without becoming a purely materialistic or annihilationist, uh, of course, modern in modern science, uh, the idea of the uh, that something persists beyond death is quite often assumed not to be the case, but is assumed that uh, everything ceases at death. Buddhism does not assume that. At the same time, it doesn't assume that there's an indestructible, immortal self that 
jumps out of this body and goes to another one. So this is uh, what William James had to wrestle with. And if you read this Principles of Psychology, when he comes to the thing called, the chapter called the self, he says, now this is one of the most curious and difficult subjects of all. What is the self? And as he, re as he talks about it, I begin to think, wow, he's quite, he's almost Buddhist in some ways, you know. And then I begin to get curious about, well, where did he, you know, where did he get these principles and so forth? And, and many of them are from German researchers, psychological researchers. But he also encountered uh, Buddhism and Hinduism. Uh, Hinduism, by the way, uh, if you have dabbled in it, um, is actually not independent of Buddhism. Quite often Hinduism will claim the Buddha as their, as a, as their son, a sort of an avatar, a kind of a Hindu deity. However, if you read any kind of post-Buddhist uh, Hinduism, you're, it's actually the opposite. Post-Buddhist Hindu teachings are significantly influenced by Buddhism and they don't like to admit it. So when you read the Bhagavad Gita or you read the sayings of Patanjali, yoga, sutras and stuff, you will find a strong influence by Buddhist thinking. When Buddhist and Hindu psychology came to the West, one of the forms was at the World Parliament of Religions held in Chicago in 1893, I think. And William James apparently attended it and got to talk to some um, Buddhist thinkers. And he, in fact, was taught mindfulness. Now, this is so early on. This is mindfulness has caught on in the West. It is now being adapted by psychology and, and lots of people are being taught this and practicing it but they're quite often taught it without it being mentioned that it has a buddhist root to it in fact it's exclusively the major technique of buddhism and psychology has adapted it so you also want to be aware that when you hear about western psychology be be aware that for over a century quite a bit more than a century Buddhist psychology has influenced Western psychology. And it's, it would be quite a detective work to, to uh, dig out and discover um, all of the roots and where these things, how these things happen. I could probably talk for about four hours on the, on the issue. <laughs> but So William James has to deal with the self and he has already heard the self, the idea of the self, challenged by Buddhist thinkers. And I believe I, it was Anagarika Dhammapala, a Sri Lankan uh, Buddhist that might have uh, had some interactions with uh, William James. There was uh, Swami Vivekananda as well. And, and so they... They also introduced him to the idea of training the mind. And strangely enough, like a philosopher, a psychologist, a, very, a man of high culture as well, 
William James has a, a brother who is uh, a, a great novelist as well. And he comes from a high, a very wealthy, distinguished family in Boston. And um, he has not really heard of the idea of controlling the mind uh, as in the practice of meditation and mindfulness and this is introduced to him by Buddhism and he explores it and he, in the principles of psychology he concludes it's impossible he's tried it a few times and he cannot control the wanderings of his own mind so and he says that just give it a try. But of course, he has not tried it very much. It has never occurred to him to make it a lifetime practice, uh, or to become a virtuoso of mental control. What he points out, though, and it which is true, is that the average person, the normal person, um, has very little control over the activity of the mind, and when they try. Uh, in a you know a psychology class or an experiment, they quickly realize how difficult it is to manage the mind. He introduced this idea of mindfulness, and so here's another spin-off, just a little bit sidetrack. One of the students in in Williams James William James class was a young woman, brilliant young woman, maybe 19 years old, named Gertrude Stein who became a famous writer later and one of the mentors to Picasso, to Hemingway, to all of the left bank Paris artists. And she has a whole style which uh, called the stream of consciousness, which she is, she's the inventor of that. She got it from the mindfulness class William James asking them to observe what he coined as the stream of consciousness. So this is a fantastic meeting of Buddhism and psychology. And many of these roots are not known to Western psychologists or philosophers or historians because they simply do not study Buddhism. And quite often Buddhists don't study Western philosophy and psychology, but here at least you see the overlap so you can see some roots are crossing over it's influenced things in many ways the greatest maybe the greatest writer of the 20th century Joyce he he also picked up this style of stream of consciousness so he writes these groundbreaking novels in stream of consciousness this is going back to to I would say amateurish handling of Buddhist ideas, the observation of mindfulness and the and the the realization how of how difficult and what a stream of events, largely out of your control, is the mind. So this is the some of the uh, crossing over. Now, the West type of Western psychology will come to eventually is psychoanalytic and if you if you want or in psychotherapeutic this has its roots in in real pathology so freud and other psychologists have had to deal with a certain 
a group of people showing up to their offices with fairly extreme suffering to the extent that it impeded their ability to function in life. And so that type of psychology is, is grounded in, in strong pathology. Buddhism is not grounded in, uh, as a solution to strong pathology. Buddhism regards basically all existence, even normative or even high-functioning existence, as slightly pathological, meaning there's a, there's a level of pain and inevitability of pain, psychic pain, even in high-functioning people, even in well-adjusted people. It's just a matter of time. And the Buddha is seeking a supernormal psychology. He has a lot of information for normative psychology. He, he has good advice for how to perform and live the normal life and the best blessings of that. And there are various suttas on that. So that's normative psychology. But he has also supernormal psychology, which aims for the highest possible conceivable goal for humans. And that's very interesting. He also understands that humans, actually, they like that. We have, notice we've been exploring the world and we've been doing dangerous things for at least 50,000 years, crossing bodies of water, um, walking long distances, discovering new places. As time goes by, eventually we cross the ocean and European civilization arrives in all of the corners of the earth. And now we're on expeditions into space, aren't we? So humans seem to be unsatisfied with anything less than ultimately going to the edge of the universe. And the Buddha is onto this, that humans would like to have ultimate ideas as well as normative ideas. Ordinary psychology is kind of uh, conservative and dull compared to this. <laughs> it doesn't have that element to it. It starts out trying to just make people a little less suffering and functional. And um, only later on, much later on in psychology, does the idea of, of happiness psychology arrive. Uh, there's a contemporary of Freud, Jung, Carl Jung, and he has, uh, he's also got Buddhist influence, very strong Buddhist influence. He is, in order to be taken seriously by the scientific community, which was a very big priority for Freud and Jung. Remember, these guys lived through the, the period of the Second World War. Jung lived into the 60s and... Uh, it, they're, approx they're approximately modern men. They start in the 19th century, but they're modern men. And modern man has to deal with scientific credibility. So Freud was preoccupied with it. He's not that good with science. He's he got some very peculiar unscientific ideas, but uh, Jung felt it was too narrow, and he he began to be exposed to Eastern ideas, Taoism, Buddhism, 
even yoga. So in a very strange way, a Swiss psychiatrist in the in the 1930s and 20s doing yoga alone in his little chalet, you know, is a very strange thing to do. In fact, he had some very strong side effects from it. He was on the edge of his own little breakdown. And he was a little bit fearful that people, that he warned that people should not take up Eastern spiritual traditions because it might be overwhelming for their Western psyche. And because it was for his. And it he was probably right at the time because... Uh, very little was really known about it. They had so little proper information, and they were a very different mindset than than the present modern mindset as well. So now, of course, what you see is a yo- there's a yoga studio on every third corner in every city, and nobody is having psychotic episodes. It's been integrated. It's been brought in. Now, the yoga that you find in, is a very mild form of practice, usually. It's, sometimes it's more about your figure than it is about any kind of um, well-being or of the mind. But these, uh, you can see this interaction between psychology and, and Buddhism. And psychology really gets a hold of Buddhism in the modern times, probably since the 70s, when they really take up mindfulness. And some of the teachers of, of, who are psychologists, they, they go and take these mindfulness courses and Vipassana courses, usually in the Burmese schools, who happen to have these systematic uh, psychological types of school t- teachings. And they bring them back and integrate them with their the new kind of schools of psychology and so and then they they offer this as a kind of a mixture so you're going to find especially in modern times a very great tendency to mix western psychological ideas with buddhist ideas and one area i want you to notice just keep your eyes and ears open for is suppression and Secondly, the idea of mere observation. Western psychology is is worried about suppressing things. And Buddhism is not worried about suppressing things. First of all, we should get clear on the idea of what the word suppression means and what the word repression means. These these words are sort of coined and, and elaborated by Freud, but repression is an unconscious uh, condition. The mind sticks things under the surface that it finds difficult to deal with, and it just doesn't know about it. But it it keeps bobbing up in strange ways because it's partly denied and not dealt with, and so side effects happen. So there's a kind of a worry, a preoccupation about the ill effects of repression. Buddhism is not concerned with that they if you do enough meditation that is the treatment for repression eventually once you are led towards the big picture of things and buddhism is very realistic it tells you the first noble truth is you first have to understand this is not a fairy story nobody lives happily ever after you die and 
there's all kinds of stuff that are going to happen on the way and everybody else around you that you love and everything that you love, you're going to lose on the way. So it starts with reality. Why do we have repression to begin with? Because we're told fictional stories all the time, which deny the actual experiences of reality. And this causes trauma in the mind, is shocked by reality. So the first thing that Buddhism does is like open the, open the jar of reality and look inside and describe what happens to living beings with sensitive bodies and sensitive minds. See what can happen, will happen, and must happen. And so now we won't just leave you with that. We will actually teach you some ways of developing shock absorbers so that you're not shocked, surprised, disoriented, and traumatized by, by these, all these possible events. Notice that uh, all of these possible events do not necessarily happen, but they could. And that's also the basis of modern the modern condition of anxiety. Now, one of the, we can call the 20th century the age of anxiety. And part of anxiety is the awareness that any, that things are essentially out of control. Anything can happen. It might not, it might not have happened, but it could. And part of us knows that anything could happen. And so we have to deal with this anxiety and we, we do it by, by looking at it and then training our minds. And this develops shock absorbers. Western psychology usually tries to do it afterwards. A post-traumatic stress disorder. Notice the word post, meaning after the trauma. <laughs> after you've been traumatized, they try to fix you. And one of the ways they try is to try to not, that you're not repressing the experience, not suppressing the experience that you're sort of watching it. Buddhism has other ways of dealing with it, which are every bit as effective or more. And we're, we're more interested in pre-traumatic stress orderness. <laughs> we want to stop it before it happens. We want you not to be traumatized to begin with. And if you are traumatized, it's not as if, you know, you go and get therapy for that particular trauma. If they don't describe reality and how to deal with it, you're set up for a future trauma because you haven't dealt with the big picture of how trauma happens. So from a Buddhist point of view, we're trying to describe all the possible ways that you can be traumatized so that you're not going to be traumatized in the future. And this is also a way of undoing trauma as well. Psychology has kind of blithely ignored Buddhist experience and gone ahead and, and, and had to invent all of these things. Some of these things are already well known. And so psychology has to... There are various economic factors in modern psychology. You need to make a reputation. You need to be scientifically respectable. You need to make a living it costs a lot of money to get a degree in psychology. It takes years to become a psychotherapist. You need money. You need clients. 
And if you have a special uh, technique or write a book, you're likely to get more of this. This is one of the elements that has to be faced and be, Western psychology has to be aware of. Freud in particular is a man with a number of children having to make a living in Vienna and it's serious. There's no social safety net. If he doesn't process patients eight and 10 hours a day, he won't make a living. And notice that his patients are upper middle class with lots of money and they come five times a week. So it's interesting that that happens to be the therapeutic thing requires five visits a week and by people with money. <laughs> it's not disconnected from the very fact that he needs to survive and have a livelihood. And some of the ideas that are generated from psychology are to do with money and livelihoods and respectability and fame and etc etc so when you're dealing with modern western psychology you have to take this into account buddhism is an old ancient thing it's 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 uh, doesn't need the money it doesn't ha monks don't have families they're not making it up as they go along they're using stuff and they're integrating in, into their lives so they're they're living the the life so it's a different approach to things and there's nothing absolutely nothing in western psychology that is remotely similar this is buddhism is the deepest most radical psychotherapy ever <laughs> ever conceived of on the face of the earth there is nothing equivalent to it in western psychology all of the treatments etc for patients are very small hobbies compared to the depth of practice and complete commitment that is offered in the highest uh, practices of Buddhism. So this, I'm just, I've just touched on this surf, surface of this. I really could go on for many, many talks, and I probably will come back to this. Um, so I'll leave it for today. strong course. Freud and 